0: My name is Toby Manhey and this is a special edition of Gone by Lunchtime. It was recorded towards the end of May, on May the 27th, uh, in those last days of Level 2, which many of you will remember. It was in Wellington at Meow and it was our Politics and Pubs um, special, which is a collaboration between spin-off members and Verb Wellington, which is a very cool organisation that runs literary events and other events. And, um... Yeah, it was a great night in Meow, everyone was safely distanced, and it was Daniel McLaughlin talking to Chloe Swarbrick, the Green MP, and it was a fascinating conversation, we hope you enjoy it. Thanks for
1: setting that up, guys. That's um, why Toby's here. Yeah, that's why Toby Manhire is here somewhere, looking in the back of the room. Um, i i 've also i 've got a little note of of people to thank here I always feel like kind of i'm i 'm reading a hostage note when I read these things out so thank you very much to meow for hosting us um yeah that's it's great to be out again um you can drink as much as you like because it 's good for the economy so you kind of ha- like have this built in sort of permission to
2: with to harm d- reduction yeah, well, yeah. Don't, yeah.
1: okay dr-, dr drink a lot responsibly um <laughs> And so, yeah, thank you very much for that, guys. Thanks to Misfit Brewery for supplying beer for the speakers, of which there is one. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs>
1: well I done, Chloe. Uh, no, yeah. I don't know. Apparently it's, it's in the mail. I thought I bought my beer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, oh, Thanks, that's right. and, and in the event of an earthquake, which now does not seem that unlikely, um, please <laughs> calmly exit and assemble in the courtyard outside and follow the lead... And instructions of the Meow staff who are trained, allegedly. Okay. Um, hi everyone. So we're here to talk about Hello Chloe. We're here to talk about change and political change. Um, with our friends. With yeah. Uh, so I, I I just thought I'd ask you kind of like to to just sort of like chat a bit before we get into the really heavy stuff. Um, have has like have you noticed ways in which the world has changed? <laughs> <laughs> like. Like, just sort of like, no, 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 I mean, like, real kind of like social change. Just like, now that we're getting back out of it, have people changed in any meaningful way?
2: I think everyone's just stoked to see other people. Yeah, Yeah, I remember um, walking. Also, kia ora. Um, I am renowned for being shocking at introducing myself. So, hello. Um, thank you for all being here. Um, hi, Daniel. Um, so I uh, I remember walking back into the parliamentary office uh, under level three, I think we came back. Yes. And I'm just going to, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I remember seeing people in person and being like, oh my God, you're in 3D. Um, <laughs> you know, no <laughs> longer in Zoom. Yeah. Um, so that was really um, awesome. And I think a lot of people were excited about that. Um, I think that there is... A lot more um, awareness of being in close physical proximity to people if we're talking about real tangible ways that people's lives have changed. Um, And that's been interesting in terms of some people uh, quite actively and explicitly flouting the rules, Uh, but then others, you know, obviously being extremely cautious. Um, It's been interesting to see the people who embrace the hugs and the high fives and the handshakes as opposed to the elbow bumps. and, yeah, beyond that, um, I think that there was this uh, real palatable um, embrace, at least on my social media bubble, um, of the potential for change um, in politics. And those conversations haven't necessarily gone away. Um, for anybody who is, you know, on Twitter, um, all thousand of us in New Zealand. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, the um, uh, I think that um, there are a lot of people who are really frustrated by a sense that that potential hasn't necessarily been grasped.
1: I, I got a, a haircut today, um, which Proud of you. you know looks incredible, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it was like my my post lockdown haircut, and um, my hairdresser trimmed my eyebrows, which is something that has <laughs> never, <laughs> never happened did. never happened to me before. So the the lockdown to... was an
2: excuse, still. Well. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> And and he didn't even ask my consent. It just happened, and I kind of like I don't Is know. Is it your usual hairdresser? No, well, no, it's, it's my usual barber. Okay. So, I don't know. It seemed like kind of a symbol of something like uh, that. The world has changed. In your sort of
2: relationship like, with your hairdresser. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that the world has changed in quite dark and unpredictable <laughs> ways. Or, and I wondered if that was the kind of change that the Green Party approved. of. Was, I don't know. No,
2: Daniel, We believe in consent. Uh, okay. Um, so. <laughs>
1: To, to kind of get into slight, slightly more meaningful forms of change, of although you, we can speak to that more if you want to. Um, so, like we've argued about politics in the past, Many but we chances. haven't done it in front of an audience mm. before. And one of the things you've kind of asked me before is like, "What is my theory?" Oh my god, of
2: he's about to yeah. yeah. Wow, how well, how much well, are you about like, to espouse? What, you know? what is
1: my theory of change? Okay, is this yeah. Question that you've asked me, and I, I haven't answered you because I don't have one. Mm. And so I so I kind of wanted to say, like, what is the Chloe Swarbrick theory of change? Like, how, how do we make change? and <laughs> Like, how does it all work? How, do,
2: you know, um, how does
1: political meaningful change happen?
2: Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question because I think um, when you genuinely investigate the concept of a theory of change, um, it doesn't necessarily have to go in any certain direction. Um, whether that be left or right or um, progressive or conservative or what have you. Um, Obviously, I have a preference in it going progressively, but I think it's useful to look at it in a kind of model. Uh, So the way that I look at, the sphere of potential for change is broadly in two categories. Um, And on the one side of things, there's kind of the structural stuff, which is uh, legislation, regulation, funding, taxation, incentives, subsidies, social welfare, uh, contract, uh, and treaties, so kind of international arrangements. Um, And that's all the stuff that I think people kind of regularly refer to when they refer to the system. But the part of the conversation that is often left unsaid is the conversation about culture. Now, culture by definition, I learnt this through um, my ex-boyfriend's degree, uh, is um, uh, culture by definition is about a shared set of values. What was his degree in? Uh, It was in uh, design thinking at AUT, um, who today I was having a bit of a pop at. It wasn't necessarily about AUT, it was about the structural change that needed to be brought about, um, and they were the tip of the iceberg. So that's the point about using the example um, and trying to galvanise people around an issue to bring about an environment that's conducive to structural change. Um, So culture, by definition, shared set of values. Really important to recognise that because um, we often think about culture as synonymous with ethnicity or religion or someone's geographical background. Those things aren't immediately culture they can be proxies for or shortcuts to understand culture but they're not the same thing which is how you can end up with a shared set of values amongst very diverse groups of people so uh, different touch points for culture are stuff like media that includes social media um, stuff like uh, collective action and community building and things like education um, and education is obviously a really important one, but it's also not the one that you would necessarily immediately go to if you want to bring about immediate change in society because it takes time to shift um, values through that uh, kind of method. So I think when you investigate um, all of those different methodologies methodologies for change, uh, you can kind of trace through all of the different ways that we have uh, facilitated. I mean, to use a classic example, right? Um, actually a really daft example, Uh, think about the example of people speeding. Uh, So you've got a 50k speed limit sign uh, in a neighbourhood and everybody goes 60ks. So you can have a structural response to that and you can go, hey, we're going to increase penalties you can have a structural response to that that goes, hey, uh, everybody is just by culture going at 60Ks, so maybe we just change the speed limit to 60Ks and then we've resolved it. So you kind of give up and go we're changing the structure because culture isn't necessarily fit to it. But if you don't investigate the culture as part of that equation, then you can end up with a perverse outcome whereby when you change the speed limit to 60Ks, all of a sudden everybody starts going 70Ks because actually the culture was everybody went 10Ks above the speed limit. So that's a very dumb example, but that's kind of about the really important connections between um, the cultural norms that we have and the way that we use them unconsciously to interact with each other and to interact with laws, regulations and otherwise. Something I
1: kind of wonder about is do we have like a shared set of values or do we have like a sort of economic system which has its own logic, which is completely indifferent to our values?
2: I think uh, that all law, because it is created by human beings, uh, is inherently value-laden. Um, and we come to interpret that in... Um, sorry, everybody, this is now a philosophical lecture brought to you <laughs> by um, Daniel and Chloe. It's just going to um, get worse. So yeah, probably like is. I say, drinking <laughs> is
1: you know, uh, yeah, encouraged and probably necessary.
2: <laughs> to make sense of it. Um, but I think that... Um, I think we do have shared values. Um, And, I mean, that's actually reflected in research. All political parties undertake this kind of research and they try and figure out how to, um, in a nice kind of way to say it, how to appeal to it and a worse way to say it, how to exploit it. Um, And that is a way to open people's minds or to shape their perspective around an issue which ends up facilitating the mandate for that structural change. And that's the thing about cultural change, creating an environment that's conducive to structural change.
1: Because I guess what I was thinking about is the the welfare changes this, oh, yeah. that brought in this week, the sort of second-tier welfare system, um, which, wh- you know, when you kind of talk to people in labour, like there is a logic to that, that it's about like preventing mortgage defaults and preventing financial instability. and yeah, a, a everybody Well, well yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they can like, quite, you know, like very, very... Um, Persu- persuasively and convincing say well like there is this sort of like economic logic to what we're doing
2: I mean you can and logically argue yeah. anything yeah. Um, if you if you yeah. want to obviously not um, to the standard yeah. of you can rationalize yeah. everything you can't necessarily mm-hmm. make everything fit within the bounds of logic so that's that's the thing about um, you know if you want to extrapolate that into any given issue particularly social issues and I would argue you know and actually I'm currently um, because of all the flack that you get for being um, a, a green and um, Involved in politics and talking about things like economics. I'm now, doing postgrad uh, studying public policy, particularly with a focus in economics. Um, and Garol, um, the former uh, head of treasury, uh, is one of my lecturers. And I hit him up about it because I'm really fascinated by how we hold out these certain kind of academic trends, uh, trends as being like the be all end all, the God, the Jesus, the deity um, at which we all must pray. Uh, that that is responsible for everything as we know it and was kind of investigating the notion that economics is the be-all, end-all. There's yeah. this thing that fell from the sky that just is what it is. And, you know, we're having this conversation back and forth and he basically just said, yeah, it's a social science. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? It is all ultimately conducive as to whether... Uh, it is all ultimately rather coming down to how people engage with the rules as they are set. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs>
2: Just a few thoughts. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, uh, th- the things that the two things that I often think when people start talking about like systemic transformational change and these are kind of contradictory, um, but that's okay. Is one like, do we really need systemic change? And like,
2: well, you and I probably don't. No, we're doing okay, as is everybody else. But, probably. But, uh, but in I guess. This room. But I guess
1: like our society. Um, it kind of feels like New Zealand, especially in this moment of time, kind of is doing something right. And you can get too self-congratulatory and say about that, and kind of say, "Well, like nothing needs to change," but obviously there are. But like, I, I sort of like feel nervous when people say, "Well, we just need to like really radical change to change everything, kind of burn it all down and start again." When like you know, like obviously there are there are admirable qualities about our society, and and yeah, like isn't isn't that sort of an argument for like incremental change, the kind of classic centrist argument that we sort of like need to need to be moderate and incremental and take things slowly.
2: Well I mean that's it's interesting that that is often pitched as um, incrementalist and I guess largely it is but I mean there is also uh, the rationale to it as um, put out by the likes of David Hall um, from AUT. AUT is not a sponsor of tonight (laughs) Um, but um, it's true look at my Twitter Uh, and they uh, he rather um, kind of talks about um, the need for a careful revolution that being that whenever you actually consider revolutions in society um, historically and the upheaval that they have caused, and particularly the devastation that they have caused, it's very painful. Yep. Um, so his argument is that you actually need to investigate what a just transition is, and you need to ensure that people are protected through that and there is a buffer in place. But I do think that oftentimes we end up, um, like particularly in parliamentary politics, what pisses me off, Daniel. Okay. Um, so it's that. There is, uh, just to give you a very broad brushstroke, binary, um, and my wisdom of three years um, in Parliament, um, that's a joke, uh, is that there is kind of two broad focuses, I think, which parliamentarians end up centralising on. There is, and there's kind of obviously a spectrum they can end up, you know, the the world isn't binary. Uh, And on the one side, it's kind of this for lack of a better term, careerism. And then on the other side, it is genuine um, kind of belief in the co up of the principles, the value set, the policies, or whatever it is, mm. the, the ideology, however yeah. you want to frame it. I find it really funny when politicians, and I've had a go about this in Parliament before, say that they don't they aren't ideological or that the government's just being yeah, ideological. Yeah, and I'm just like, mate, do you know well. what ideology is? Yeah. Do you know how? Yeah. Anyway. Um, there's so this, There's
1: this famous Keynes quote. I'm going I'm to mangle it. But the, the people who don't think they're ideological are slaves to sort of like defunct economists and philosophers, well, which it's, I always Yeah, yeah totally. That, but yeah, it, if, is a bit if you don't think you're ideological, it just means you are and probably quite like flawed. And, well, yeah. it's,
2: uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's I mean, and, and that's anyways. the thing about being consistently critical yeah. of your belief system and not dogmatic. I mean, mm. if you are um, consistently kind of attempting to unpick it, like another um, perhaps far more colloquial version of that is that tradition is essentially just peer pressure from dead people. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, that there is the one side of things which is kind of the careerism yeah. which can be a focus and obviously there's different weightings that can be given to these two things and it is broad brushstroke it needs to be investigated uh, but on the other side it's the kind of change that you're in the place to try and bring about and I think particularly and this is just my personal opinion this doesn't bear any weight in the Green Party of in New Zealand etc nor does it represent the government um, but I look particularly at the larger parties and the way that they uh, put parliamentarians and MPs through their hoops, through the ranks. And it's basically that in order to have an opinion, you have to sit down, shut up, uh, you know, be a vote.
1: Breathe through your nose is the word they tend to use. Yeah, but for
2: 10 years, you you don't, you know, you're not really saying anything controversial publicly. Hmm. And if you are, you're very publicly Mm. reprimanded. Um, And... What that means, I think, is that you can end up in this perverse situation where you can justify uh, incrementalism because you argue that you need to be there in that position in order to facilitate the change. And I don't think people actually think about how selfish that is. Or can be?
1: Yeah, I guess that was the other thing that I I always feel suspicious about when I hear people talking about radical change because I feel like it's become a marketing tool in left wing yeah, and progressive politics. A part of that, yeah. yeah, that it's something that she says
2: wearing a Bernie Sanders well, T-shirt. Is
1: it, oh, is it <laughs> Bernie? Okay, yeah, yeah. That yeah, it's a way to kind of well, uh, uh, like a way to sell T-shirts or a way to like yeah, like. <laughs> well, there's the thing: as yeah, soon yeah. as
2: your um, radical slogans are in glasses, that like, how, how radical are you? You know? <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, so. Th- is the window... So we're, we're, like, talking about this...
2: Do we b- want to talk about the Pride Parade? I mean, no, anyway, no, as this no, just... A, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, you'll get us both cancelled. No. So, like, we're kind of talking about change in this moment because it seemed... It seems, and maybe I should be using the past year, it seemed like there was this kind of window of change that, you know, the coronavirus The crisis, Overton
2: window, Daniel?
1: Well, yeah, maybe. Um, we can talk about that if you want. But, yeah, it's, it seemed like people were kind of saying... Um, hey, we're in this crisis, yeah. and like maybe sort of like you know, the window is, is wider than it has been in the past, and maybe things can happen.
2: I think people were just um, really interested in talking about ideas yeah. that they perhaps weren't necessarily open to before. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that means, and I was just talking to Max um, Rashbrook, an economist, an you know, economist yeah, okay, as an economist, Um, uh, about the idea of, and this is Max's hypothesis, not necessarily mine, I've got a mull on it um, before I steal it. Um, No, but the um, notion that uh, disaster, kind of socialism, is that what you said, is as potentially undemocratic and problematic as disaster capitalism. And just that rushing things through in a really undemocratic, very urgent way um, without having the conversation with people or building the mandate for that change is really problematic. But, you know, that kind of um, brings me back to the commentary that I saw around your piece in the spin-off, shout out Toby, uh, about Piketty's book, um, Capital and Ideology, yes. um, which is a thousand-page tome. That's, that's um, monstrous. Yeah, I took it yeah. to Tongaruro, um this weekend and my partner was really angry at me for taking up that <laughs> much space um, in the suitcase, because um, I read about 20 pages of it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the notion that's, is it the, I don't know how to say the word, the Bahrain left?
1: Brahman. Brahmin. Yeah. The
2: Brahmin left, and you'd explain it. Uh, You're so the guy who wrote the, it. Okay, yeah. so...
1: You're going to make this whole room of people angry with me. So the the Brahmin left... But I want
2: to gauge the response to it because I think it's really important. So
1: the the Brahmin left is this idea in Piketty's new book and what he's done is he's gone and looked at voting patterns and... um, like the US and the UK and France. Yeah, France. He's from France. Yeah, yeah, and it it holds true in New Zealand, which shows that kind of in the mid-20th century, left-wing political parties were mainly supported by kind of like, well, the lower classes, the proletariat. And that that was sort of like... um, really grouped by education. So people that, that left school early, that didn't have degrees, um, kind of supported left-wing political cl- political parties. And that's changed quite radically in the 21st century. So now left-wing political parties... Um, the the top ten percent of people like overwhelmingly support left wing political parties, and right wing political parties are kind of increasingly supported by like the you know the, the proletariat or whatever you want to call them. And so he has this term, the Brahmin left, which kind of says um, most of the people that control political parties and uh, you know like uh, sort of influ- uh, influence the cultural sector and the education sector are this sort of like new essentially aristocratic faction but they're a faction that kind of don't see themselves as part of the ruling class. They very much like to see themselves as kind of like transgressive and sort of like left-wing and, and, you know, believing in changing things, but sort of believe in a kind of change that never really changes anything because they're so you know, like empowered by the status quo, you know, they're kind of rich and they have really nice jobs. And so the Brahmin left prefer like, oh, so yeah, like symbolic cultural victories. Mm. So I thought a really great example was there was a huge fight this week over Todd Muller owning like a a MAGA hat. And the same day that that was like a huge debate kind of on the sort of intellectual left, the Labour Party was introducing this two-tier Benefit system, and I thought, wow, that's just like such a perfect symbolism of Piketty's thesis. You have kind of the, the sort of cultural elite obsessing over this, you know, like s- symbolic um, war, and something that's really quite like an- anathema to sort of left wing political values being introduced by a left wing political And I party. think,
2: um, again, I- I think that it is really important that we take on board and don't cancel people like Daniel, um, because that is a really <laughs> valuable so late critique. To, you're
1: you're so <laughs> I saw the late responses yeah, from people yeah. who I know on Facebook, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, but well, I, lots
1: of academics and Guardian columnists got really angry with me for writing that review. So um, yeah,
2: yeah, I don't. I'll yeah. leave commentary on that yeah. between the lines. Um, <laughs> so the, the the thing that I find really fascinating about the response to your kind of critique. Uh, is that it was seen as being synonymous with a critique of the need to fight for um, recognition of how there is different types of oppression or yep. um, the the need for equity which recognizes yeah. differences or diversity or what have you um and the funny thing actually um about the the hat um, is I think it is really imp- symbols are really important yep. um but the point was best made, I think, by um, my colleague, Gauri's Gutterman, um, that uh, it's... Why are we all just talking about the hat as a, as a matter of symbol... Yeah when actually we have the opportunity to be investigating the voting record of a guy who's holding himself out to want to be the leader of the country, um, which actually is pretty much in line with the person who is responsible for that symbol Hmm. uh, with regard to women's rights, gay rights, et cetera. Although he's relaxed. He's junkie 2.0. And I love people being relaxed about my right to marry. Um, So I just... Yeah, I I think it is really important that we do not take a dogmatic approach where we consistently think that we're always right and anybody who is attempting to critique um, is inherently an enemy because that... Is stifling to evolution, um, and as you say, it it is part of what has helped to alienate, particularly the people that the left purport to represent, which are working class.
1: I'm really glad you said that because it lets me segue just really effortlessly into this next question. Um, so, there have been lots of kind of like in the, the COVID moment, there have been lots of people sort of saying, giving what I call kind of now more than ever speeches which is when you sort of say, wow, this is really an mo- amazing moment and the world is changing. And now, Would more you than have ever, ever
2: written one of those now speeches? More than than ever,
1: <laughs> <laughs> now more than ever, everything that I've always said is like really, really true. Yeah. And so there have been lots of these coming from different directions. <laughs> so what I'm curious about is, that, is, is there anything you've changed your mind about like in response to everything that's happening? Like, yeah.
2: Um, I don't necessarily think that, um, I mean, nothing, nothing floats to mind immediately. Uh, I do... As I say, I, I I remember coming back to Parliament um, very vividly because it was only, like, three weeks ago. Um, and just... I was actually talking to Max about this just before at the bar. Um, I was just, like, really? This is it? I, I, I would love the... I I hate a lot of the performative politics that we end up undertaking, but I also recognise the importance of that in terms of facilitating the cultural conversation that means that we get the mandate for that structural change. But um, the way that parliamentarians have created the culture of our adversarial parliament, um, I just find really exhausting and a massive waste of time a lot of the time. There is so much more work. You know how everybody always complains um, on comments uh, about on the social media comments. Whenever there's a speech posted, and everyone's like, "But where are all the parliamentarians? Uh, Why are we paying you?" Well, we all have to be on precinct until ten o'clock at night. Um, I currently have leave um, because I'm musterer, and the uh, the work that gets done in our offices is far more valuable. And that's actually something um, which I was reflecting within a conversation with you before I wrote my maiden speech. Yes. Uh, And that was Yes With You (laughs) Uh, and Pointings Road. And um, my uh, kind of thesis on it was that Everything that happens in the chamber is performative. Like The politics is the stuff that the world-changing things happen behind the scenes. Everybody knows what's going to happen before they go into parliament. Uh, the, the chamber is orchestrated.
1: There's this show, this br- famous British political show, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. I don't know if millennials know it. I'm thing. aware oh, okay. of it. Right. He, it's, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that show. But he, the, the writer, this guy Lynn, his name was, was asked... Um, why do you never show anything that's happening in Parliament? Why don't you? Why is the House never in the show? And he said, because my show is about power, and the House yeah. is about theatre, and yep. I want to show how people, how the country is governed, not how the sort of like the theatre of how it pretends to be governed. Yeah, totally. So yeah,
2: totally. Um, yeah. And. I mean, that is what I find really just to kind of walk yeah. through um, for people how um, I think that you can trace some of the the most effective um, kind of changes that we've managed to get through in the past um, three years that I have played some part in or participated in Um You know, in the drug law reform kind of area around the Misuse of Drugs Act, um, that came about as a result of the synthetics crisis. And at the start of the year, uh, it was really, really percolating in the media space. And there was this kind of knee-jerk response and reaction particularly from the National Party uh, that we just needed to penalise people more Um, we needed to ratchet up penalties under the Misuse of Drugs Act Uh, and at that point in time I actually knew next to nothing about drug policy before I came into Parliament. Um, I'd been doing all of this reading and I was like that is absolutely incorrect (laughs) Um, and uh, you know um, uh, simply penalising people doesn't um, deal with the problem but also the problem is always to do with demand because as long as people have shitty lives people will abuse substances uh, because they need a form of escapism, not just substances, whether it's gambling or pornography or, you know, whatever your thing is. And um, I was having these uh, kind of conversations behind the scenes, as much as I can tell you, I will tell you, uh, with the minister, the health minister um, and Andrew Little, the justice minister, and Stuart Nash, the police minister, which is like the holy trifecta of the drug ministers, and they... Not, no, they don't take that in the wrong way. They, they are responsible for legislation. <laughs> That's a really good for band name. If the whole like, for politics thing doesn't work out for you, yeah, be... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always wanted to be a Holy stand-up comic, but I'm ministers. shocking. Yeah. Um, uh, so, mm. uh, yes, they are responsible for legislation pertaining to drugs. Uh, so I was kind of talking to all of them and their officials and whatnot, and I had this conversation with folks who will remain unnamed, and I was like... Uh, you know, there was this response of how we had to just—you know—we we had to do what everybody was asking for. We had to—we had to increase penalties. We had to mm. prohibit them more. Uh, and I was like, but you know that that's not going to work. You know, you—you you have demonstrable proof. Here's all of this—the this screeds and screeds of stuff. And they were like, yeah, but we just have to do something. I was like. What? Yeah. We just have to do something.
1: So this is another Yes Minister quote yeah, which but is no, the, but Yeah, but we just have, we to, have do to do something. This is something we must do this. Yes, totally. That goes, yeah. And <laughs> I I was just
2: like, I'm sorry but that that's yeah. that's not going to happen no. here. And I was really fortunate and um, and this is kind of, you know, lifting the lid on stuff. I was really fortunate in that uh, at that point in time, the National Party were trying to push through um, because they got Simeon bills, uh, bill Simeon Brown's bill uh, pulled out (laughs) of the biscuit tin and uh, he was doing exactly the same thing trying to ratchet up penalties and because we were relatively new as a government the government didn't want to give credit to him for doing Ah, that so that was a massive opportunity for me to be like you know he's wrong but that's actually a proxy for what some people are Trying to do, yeah. uh, and to progress the argument in a very public way, and we ended up through that. Um, you know, it, it's kind of the the way that things happen when you end up being, you know, a backbench first term MP. But you know, the ministers um, Nash and Clark ended up fronting on that and putting it forward as it was this massive kind of uh, d- taking it to the drug dealers bill. But actually, the changes to Section Seven of the Misuse of Drugs Act that we managed to negotiate through there effectively decriminalise all low-level use of substances and require that the police, by default, actually instead send people to health services. It's massive, but it happened relatively undercover. And that's the bullshit of politics, folks.
1: (laughs) So now more than ever, you think that (laughs) politics is still put too performative.
2: I I think, yeah. Yeah. Just this adversarial, like, colonial... Like, the uh, the Westminster Parliament, if you were to design a, a system that was capable of responding to the massive challenges that we as humanity face, you would not design parliament. You know, you would would instead focus on bringing experts into the room, focus on bringing representation into the room, Mm. but instead we have this space that is, as you kind of have articulated already, um, very much... Kind of focused on the theatre, the guys, the facade of we've all got it under control. Mm. Um, But you know, anybody who has had any proximity to parliament knows that parliamentarians are just people trying their best. (laughs) There is absolutely no magical powers, you know. And I'm actually really grateful for the fact that we have no threshold of elitism inside our representative democracy because it enables it the potential to be genuinely representative. Mm. And I think that's how weirdos like me end up slipping through the cracks and ending up in there. That is and that shows anybody can.
1: We have a much higher weirdo quotient under MMP, don't we? Although yeah. it seems to be... Yeah. Yeah, I'm not we're talking sure. about the
2: Greens. I know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: ACT were pretty weird. Um, yeah.
2: Okay, like, yeah. yeah. Hey, bro. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> ACT when they had a lot of MPs was, I think, the strangest... <laughs> party we've ever had.
2: Like,
1: um, You're really helping Brooks' yeah, chances, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> there's a so there's this French novelist called Michel Houellebecq, and, and I'm thinking about him.
2: Welcome because, to a Wellington event, yeah, guys. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> because there were all these sort of like you know like um, talk this talk about how we can really change things because of the coronavirus, mm. and Houellebecq wrote the kind of like this open letter to the coronavirus, in which he sort of like criticised it for not being sexually transmitted, but he also said. Um, Life after sounds very academic. Yeah, yeah, well, (laughs) he also said that life after the coronavirus will be the same, only worse. And so, (laughs) I don't care. And and I kind of like often, especially in our politics, in the last couple of weeks, have sort of felt that there is something to that. So, what I kind of want want from you, I guess, is sort of tell everyone here and me, like what do we do that kind of like can can be meaningful and can kind of bring about change? Like what's the thing that people people who aren't like number three on the Green Party list? Like what do the rest of us do to sort of make a difference?
2: Um, I think that you recognize that the most radical thing that you can do is switch off from seeing yourself as an isolated individual and as part of a network of people as part of the community. Um, you know, I, I hate to consistently keep referring to my maiden speech... ...but it's fresh in my mind... ...because um, I regularly think about not being in Parliament... Um, <laughs> ...and one of the best pieces of advice that was ever given to me... ...was um, actually by Marilyn Waring... ...which is, you know, when you first go in there... ...write a list of the things that you're interested in... ...and your kind of purpose, your kaupapa... Yep. ...and reflect on that whenever you feel uncertain... ...or every year or so at least... And if you're comfortable with the changes that have occurred, then that's cool, you've got your new thing, and you write that down. But if you're uncomfortable, then you leave. And uh, I remember really, like, vividly, there's a few different themes in it, but one of them um, is talking about the mental health crisis and, you know, I've been very open about the fact that um, I have depression Uh, and, you know, I'm medicated for that and anybody who has experienced any form of mental ill health knows that that is not a linear process. Um, The very whack part of like, being a person who is in this position is regularly that people hold me out as somehow um, being successful or being able to, like, get past it. And I'm like, you don't see me breaking down. (laughs) You know, you don't see the the other sides of it. But in talking about that mental ill health crisis um, in in that speech, um, I spoke about how that is the logical endpoint of kind of decades of this way of thinking systemically, uh, which has effectively through economic, social, criminal justice and otherwise policy forced us to compete against each other almost for competition's sake. You know, a lot of people rationalise or argue that it is ultimately for the outcome of greater innovation or what have you. But what we actually um, end up with, if I end up talking to people about, you know, what do you actually want? From your life, like what 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 is it that you are aiming for? Why are you working so hard? Almost everybody will state things like, you know, so I can do the thing that I love when I retire, so that I can spend more time with my kids, so I can, you know, play my I don't know guitar or whatever <laughs> ukulele. We're in yep. Wellington, um, and the 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 whole kind of experience of that uh, is demonstrative, I think, of actually trying to pull apart why are we doing this? Like, what is the point? Yep. Why are we stuck inside the system and we're playing this game and we're all competing against each other? And why do we accept that this is the kind of economic, social, etc. hierarchical structure that, you know, we have? Some people just say the law is the law is the law. This is just the way that things are. I'm sorry, but things like, uh, you know, someone sleeping homeless outside the bottom of Louis Vuitton um, in Queen Street is not a natural phenomena. Um, you know, the rate of climate change that we have as a result of human interference um, with regard to carbon emissions is not a natural process, which leads you to the conclusion that we have, by our actions, done some pretty shit stuff. But, you what know? A, but the, what those a, problems are man-made. I'm about to get to we? the positive okay, point. Okay, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I was actually talking to a journalist today, and they were like, "You don't give sound bites," and I was like, "Yeah, I'm sorry." <laughs> He's like, "Here's the history," um, but I. Um, You know, the the positive point of recognizing how we actively or inactively, passively, by neglect, uh, either by design or neglect, have ended up in this situation is recognition of the fact that we have the opportunity to act to change it. And that is when, you know, you start to have the discussion about what you can actually do. Um, Inside of the way that things presently operate, you know, if you want to, sure, you can go into politics. Um, But again, I don't think that parliamentary politics by itself has ever changed the world. I think that um, there are definitely people who have grasped opportunities at certain points in time to ram things through. uh, But they have obviously then kind of faded into the distance. Uh, I think that the best, most sustainable way to bring about change is to do it from the ground up. And that is in recognising the people around you and building a neighbourhood. You know, who the hell knows their neighbours? I mean, maybe you guys do, but yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> I have lived in rental properties my whole life and have moved around tons. You know, there's how many people here work in the gig economy and move from place to place and don't ever really get the opportunity to know their colleagues. And intern, that means that when you are experiencing problems, you don't necessarily share them with people. It's a problem with you. You know,
1: So we need to build a community, is that? Yeah, we need to build a, m- that's a community. That's my soundbite <laughs> that I'm taking from what you've said.
2: <laughs> we need to build a But that sounds yeah, yeah. really amorphous. Yeah. The way that you tangibly build a community is you talk to people, uh, particularly people who you think you disagree with. Mm. That's real controversial. Mm-hmm. Um But in all seriousness, we have lost the capacity uh, to have conversations because of how polarised we have enabled our political discourse in particular to become. And I think that takes us full circle to your point. And this is not to say that everybody, particularly those who are being actively attacked by the people who are saying whatever, should be the ones to engage. But it is to say that when you're sitting around the Christmas table with racist Uncle Jim, you have a familial connection with racist Uncle Jim and you are not the butt of his jokes, nor are you the one at the receiving end of the kind of culture that he is helping to perpetuate. Hmm. So you have the opportunity to help change his mind and he will listen to you.
1: He's persuadable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think ultimately all people are persuadable. I mean, I think that the silver lining is that all people are capable of all value sets, and that is simultaneously a very terrifying but also a very optimistic thing. No, I don't agree with that at all.
1: Really? But yeah, yeah, no. Who,
2: who's inherently evil?
1: Well, uh, no, I don't think people are inherently evil. <laughs> but I think, I, you know, I really do believe that, I, I mean, there's a, a lot of literature in the political science about this idea of, like... Um, the, the sort of big five personality types, yep. the ocean model, which mm-hmm. is like, I'm, I'm not going to remember them now, openness to new ideas, conscientiousness, extroversion, extroversion, introversion, um, what's the Agreeableness. Agreeableness and, and neuroticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... And so yeah, it was like, used
2: by Cambridge Analytica.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and and they, those guys know what they're doing. Um, and so yeah, the, the idea is that like people with sort of like strong progressive left wing values tend to almost consistently be extremely open to new experiences, mm. and people with like who are extremely conservative are, are at the other end of that spectrum, and they have a much stronger stress like threat response to sort yeah. of the idea that things are going to change. And but you're looking yeah. at
2: it from the wrong way around. I think. I think that if you manage to find ways to shift people. Yeah neuroticism or openness yeah. or agreeableness or mm. what have you, then you manage to shift where they sit in the political space. Yep. I think the only way to do that in a, in an open and in an ethical mm. way is to have those conversations with people as opposed yeah. to trying to manipulate them, which is what a lot of the kind of stuff that's happening on social media is.
1: Yeah. See, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you can shift them, but I know if you can sort of change the messaging Um
2: I mean, I use the, my dad the, as an example.
1: Yeah. yeah so, so do I. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, we've all got our dads. <laughs> yeah. Um, But, like, my old man um, would rile me up when I was growing up and he would consistently talk about, because, um, you know, he worked in finance and, you know, John Key. John Key. John Key's yeah. the man. And he would talk really disparagingly about Helen Clark. And I wouldn't necessarily go in to defend either of them. I didn't know anything about it, but I was just like, what is this weird thing? Cause dad would, you know, go around to um, our friends places and, you know, he would be drinking with the adults and having this conversation. And because I am an absolute nerd and precocious child, I would go and sit with them um, and end up having these conversations with the adults or rather just listening to them. And he would be riling up um, our friends, Ronnie and Tony, who were teachers who were like, no, Helen Clark's amazing. And, Then I got older and learnt that dad has actually only ever voted twice. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think that he was operating just as a contrarian because he loves to pull people's leg. But also... You know, there is um, something exciting and enticing to people about winning an argument. But then on top of that, there's the identity side of things, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the really interesting thing when you have conversations with people, as I get to do all around the country, and people identify as being somewhere on the spectrum or with a certain political party, but their values don't necessarily align with that. There's just this kind of vacuous rhetoric that glues them to it or their life experience.
1: Yeah, I think, like, there's... one one way of thinking about sort of where voters sit on ideological spectrums and political spectrums is that there's like sort of a number of people who really, really strongly affiliate to a specific value system and a mm-hmm. political party, and then there's the other 99% of the population who, yeah. like, yeah, d- who, who don't, and they are like, yeah, m- like, lots who aren't of
2: necessarily swing voters, no, but no. don't necessarily yeah. feel super invested in on, yeah. on an identity yeah. basis.
1: And some of them might just like b- a, a lot of it is about where you live and kind of what you do. Like, if you live in a city and you work at a university you'll probably be a left-wing voter and if you live in a provincial town and you work in a, you own a small business then like every yeah it's sort of like there are these uh, like what they call what are they uh, elective affinities which kind of like mean that your political beliefs kind of line up with the way you vote just based on your kind of situation and, and yeah, how and everybody a, else votes and, there's a kind yeah. of
2: team element to yeah, it as yeah. well i think yep. yeah yeah
1: um, so I have one last question. I, th- I thought I'd thought i ask you about drugs and then we'd take questions from the audience. And so, like, my question about drugs is more of, like, a long, rambling statement. Wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, because because normally when I host these things, that's what I get from the audience, so I kind of <laughs> wanted to turn the tables a little bit. <laughs> and so there's, there's, there's this, like, conservative argument that I'm actually, like, a little bit sympathetic to sometimes that one of the problems with liberalism is that it kind of, like, I don't know, it... it it gives people freedom to do things that we kind of like want to do in the immediate short term, like, you know, um, smoke drugs, for example, or play video mm-hmm. games. And so that, like, kind of liberal society is sort of enabled to do people to be free to do all of these things. But those things are kind of corrosive to sort of like longer term life satisfaction and happiness. And so my question to you is, like, why, why do you want to sort of, like, destroy society and make <laughs> happiness impossible? And, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, I mean, one, of, one <laughs> of the best kind of tweets that ended up coming um, off the back of uh, the kind of few weeks in which we were simulating the conversation around the cannabis referendum and the euthanasia legislation passing uh, is that... Uh, people were talking about, it was actually a tweet from Family First about how you can smoke a joint and kill granny. Um, (laughs) And I just love, I would love to be in Bob McCroskey's head. Um, But I think um, the first thing, kind of on the notion that, uh, you know, conservatives are trying to block people from doing things that can be corrosive to them. Mm. I really want to challenge that because, you know, oftentimes um, conservatism looks back with really rose-tinted lenses at, yep. for example, you know, the 1960s or what yeah. have you. And I find that really fascinating because at that point in time, there are a lot of people who are really bloody unhappy. Um, in the same way that there's a lot of really bloody unhappy people right now. But, you know, if you think about the fight for particularly, particularly recognition of someone's existence yep. – um, and the way that people were jailed for you know, um, sleeping with people of the same sex or yep. what have you. Um, there are a lot of people who are not necessarily doing something that is corrosive to their, their morals yes. or whatever. It's actually about recognizing and coming to find who they are and therefore their purpose, identity, etc. Mm. So that's kind of one side of it. Um, with regards to the drugs debate, This is where it's really interesting to me because, ironically, there is actually largely the same premise that emanates from both myself and the likes of conservatives, which is that we want to protect communities, we want to protect kids, uh, and we want to stop people using harmful substances, particularly to excess. Uh, The problem is that cannabis uh, prohibitionists are arguing whether cannabis should exist Yes. We've lost that fight and they have lost that fight. Yep. <laughs> uh the argument then becomes with that premise, how do you best regulate to reduce that harm and to achieve that aim?
1: It is one of those things which in 10 years' time the leader of the National Party will be relaxed about, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, very relaxed, very yeah. relaxed. Maybe <laughs> suspiciously Some so, things but, never yeah. change.
2: Um, but the other thing around drugs, which is so fascinating, and actually about um, pretty much all of the things that have been outlawed or prohibited, um, particularly traditionally, which are like... The hallmarks of um, kind of conservatism are things which people in positions of power did regardless of the laws. Yes. If you want to talk about things like prostitution, if you Mm -hmm. want to talk about things like drugs, if you want to talk about things like, um, you know, same sex sex a lot of those things were still undertaken by people in power with no um, recourse or enforcement. The, the I- and illegality
1: was not evenly distributed. That's
2: absolutely not. Yeah. Um, but actually it was to perpetuate a mythology which yeah. justified the oppression of certain people yeah. in society. And that's on record, actually, if you want to talk about drugs, by, um, I've forgotten his name, Eichmann. Um, who was one of the key advisors to uh, Richard Nixon, um, and he ended up coming out in approximately 2012, uh, speaking to a journalist, I think, for Time, and he was reflecting on um, when Nixon first came into office and how uh, they were, you know, working through what kind of laws they would create around drug prohibition. And they, he effectively says, and I'm going to terribly um, misquote this, but something along the lines of, you know, we knew that we could. Oh, there were two enemies of the Nixon campaign and a kind of of the conservative agenda, the and hippies. it was the anti-war left. Yeah. And the blacks searching for civil rights uh, and recognition. And, you know, we couldn't make being black or being anti-war illegal, but we could make drugs illegal, which enabled us the opportunity to then go and break up their meetings, arrest them and harass them night after night on the evening news. Mm. So it's all a mythology, folks. Mm
1: -hmm. So we're going to take questions now. Um, Bring them on. Shout them out. Um, No, maybe I should... Ask for raised hands. There's a rumming microphone. Okay. Oh, is there? Uh, korua. Um, thanks for
2: this talk. Um, my question's about, you talked about the parliamentary system being a bit a trash. Um, so my question is basically, what would be your ideal system and or what might be a, a nice tweak we could make to the current one? You've enabled me to talk about um, one of my favorite topics that I was told in 2017 I should never talk about um, by one of our media advisors because it's boring. Um, and <laughs> constitutional reform, my friend. Um, so I am a, a big fan of the Supreme codified Constitution. Um, and I, I, I think a lot of people have a have a gut reaction um, to it and think about immediately the United States um, and the model that they have and the challenges that they have in changing it. Um, But I think also on the flip side, a lot of people don't recognise that right now the only thing that upholds your rights supposedly is the Bill of Rights Act 1990, Section 4 of which says that if there is any piece of legislation which is inconsistent with the Bill of Rights, then the inconsistent legislation overrides your rights because we have a concept called parliamentary supremacy. So it's um, like a
1: really standard thing during the key administration. Like oh, yeah, I mean, if we, we want to talk uh, about disability yeah, carers yeah, yeah. and,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a problem. I think that's also a problem because it places supremacy in the parliament, not in the hands of people. So you can go to the Supreme Court and ask for a declaration of inconsistency, but it actually doesn't enable the court to hold parliament to account, um, which I think places far too much power in the hand of politicians as opposed to in the hands of citizens. And arguably, um, you know, the the typical response is, oh, but we have elections every three years. But the problem that I see is this kind of uh, downward spiral whereby people become disengaged because they don't see action occurring in the things that they care about. And ironically, when politicians behave badly and people go, that's bullshit, I'm not engaging with that, you actually give it a hall pass to continue. Because if you are not like all of the people who are currently in parliament are there because you elected them or you neglected to elect them, you you neglected to elect an alternative, you neglected to campaign for something and to build the case and the mandate within broader society for that change. So um, I think that constitutional reform would enable us to actually look at the format of Parliament. Um, right now, our parliament's literally, by design, is modelled on uh, Westminster. And uh, the funny thing about that is that the leader of the opposition in the Prime Minister's seat is literally two swords length apart um, because the adversarial model is about fighting uh, and someone comes up with a better uh, kind of idea simply by virtue of winning, which I think... Is also problematic because then you end up the baby being thrown out with the bathwater because somebody's name is attached to something. Uh, we also have a really, really terrible culture of despising it when politicians do what we call flip flopping. And I mean, oh my God, how great would it be if people changed their mind when confronted with new evidence? Um, We just don't like that to happen with our leaders. (laughs) So we really back people into a corner. Um, So I think that's kind of cultural change, which again I think could be facilitated uh, by taking far more... Often people kind of hold up select committees as a great model or example, but um, I also think that select committees operate... Uh, in a way that can come across as rather inaccessible to to a lot of people. Um, Because there's a difference between transparency and accountability or accessibility, right? Like, New Zealand consistently ranks towards the top of the world in transparency stakes, but then accountability and accessibility is all to do with whether average Joe can actually read what the hell is going on and make heads or tails of it. Um, And... That's, man, I was about to go on a sidetrack of 5G um, and about conspiracy (laughs) and um, kind of uh, anti-authoritarian moves and kind of culture and stuff, but I'll hold that. Uh, And I think that we basically, um, fundamentally, in a nutshell, need to kind of have a parliament that is modelled on te tiriti o waitangi um, and is far more actually respecting of uh, where we're at um, as a country, where we can be, uh, and, you know, the, the treaty. Um, but that will also open the door to a far more constructive and collaborative space, um, because if you look at te ao Māori and tikanga kind of approaches to resolving conflict, um, it is, yeah, ultimately just far more constructive than the way that we currently do things.
1: Do we have any 5G questions out there? <laughs> how it's causing the Rothschilds to...
2: <laughs> I have a um, triangle tattoo um, which somebody identified in um, a photo and said that, yeah, it was um, Illuminati. Illuminati, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just I got it when I was 20. <laughs> I do actually have a 5G question. Um, how concerned are you about the growth of misinformation hmm. and this kind of international movement to distrust government and to distrust science And how do you think that might impact on our election? It's ironic, I think, because it's actually what localism looks like. Uh, And it's something that particularly as well, like on the left we celebrate and we go, that's a really cool thing. Um, But... I think that it's difficult. Like Often when we have these discussions, people are like, where do we lay blame? It's the institutions themselves. Oh, it's the media. Uh, The thing thing is, it doesn't matter where we lay blame. Um, It ultimately matters how we resolve that conflict, that tension, and end up in a place where people are able to access and trust information. Uh, But I think um, that kind of anti-authoritarian bent is largely born of feeling very let down by the status quo. And it's ironic that that's led some people to do things like vote for Donald Trump, who arguably is representative of a lot of the status quo with regard to, you know, how he made his money and otherwise. Um, And I think the only way that we actually begin to unpick all of that... uh, has to be a grassroots effort like and that sounds very like blase kind of classic left wing pol- politician response but it's not going to be able to be resolved from the top down you can have um, strong men leaders or you can have, uh, you know, leaders who uh, symbolise um, kindness and compassion and otherwise, but you're still going to end up with all of this um, kind of misinformation when you have the democratisation of communication like we do on social media platforms and people feel as though their voice doesn't matter. ...in those traditional spaces. So perhaps it's a better form of participatory democracy. Um, Perhaps it is finding those spaces for people to come together as communities... ...because this stuff is largely being facilitated online. Um, And when you are online, you are able to find your tribe of people... ...for lack of a better term, uh, who all agree with you ideologically... ...and go further down that rabbit hole in a way that was technically and literally impossible decades ago, uh, because you had to have these conversations with people in your (laughs) neighbourhood. People would be like, okay, Joe. Um, But you know what I mean? So I think it's, yeah, just finding those spaces to have conversations with people and meeting them where they're at. Um, I don't think there's an easy quick fix or a silver bullet. But I am concerned about it when um, leaders hold themselves up as being um, the sole arbiter of truth Um, and like, kind of insists that people bypass the so-called mainstream media, um, and this distrust of media is, is is a real concern.
1: We got another one. How much time have we got? I think maybe we've got
2: about five, ten more minutes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Maybe sort of like one kind of reasonably short question and one kind of more sort of. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Long rambling answer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, don't do I mean, I'm sort sorry. of, like,
1: expansive and thoughtful <laughs> answer. Um, okay, anyone out there?
2: There's someone at the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for talking. Um,
0: and I guess there's just something that you've said, like, a couple of times now. Like, I've heard you say it at um, the Aotearoa Town Hall. Um, and that was, like, a way to, like, make and get into parliament like anyone can. Um, I don't know, like, it's always just, like, felt a little bit itchy to me because, like, I think it's incredible that as a young person going to government, but, like, the reality is you have to, like, still be able to talk a certain way and, like, you know, put yourself on stage and, like, act a certain way and be, like, okay with, like being in the public eye a lot and that's, like, not accessible to everyone. Not to mention, like, there's, like, whole swathes of people that, like, society kind of just rejects, like, in a social... Um, oh, what's the word? Um, like... Mainstream. ...realm? Yeah. Like, like, I don't know, like, I can't see a gang member going to parliament or, like, a homeless person, for example. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, Kia ora. Thank you for your question. Uh, so... I am being flippant when I say that. Um, And the reason that I'm flippant in saying that is also kind of uh, because between the lines I'm pointing to the fact that there are a lot of people who uh, don't necessarily... Oh, man, this is going to sound awful, but ad heaps. Um, There are a lot of people who are just kind of there. (laughs) Um, I mean, they they do represent their constituencies and otherwise, but... um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, sure, absolutely. I 110% agree with you that there are masses of levels of privilege that come into the equation when it comes to even beginning to apply um, to set foot in the place, Um, not to mention the stupidity or confidence requisite to even put yourself forward. Um, And, you know, uh, I can't remember who wrote it. There was a, anyway, I'm going to park that because I can't remember who wrote it, but, The kind of core thing to recognise is that, again, change is not going to come from the top down. I don't... Think and I'm regularly having discussions with um, you know, it's obviously obvious where I sit on the political spectrum. And I've got mates who are anarchists and um, all sorts of things and don't want to engage in parliamentary politics and just keep calling for kind of a revolution and all of these kinds of things. And I guess my response um, always is that I don't know how to do that. Um, I think that that is why we need to support more leaders coming through and that leadership doesn't need to occupy a chair in parliament. It can look a lot of different ways. And... That, for me, um, is the importance of also recognizing that, you know, everybody has different characteristics. And I've seen it in terms of the way that, uh, for example, you know, Marama can say something and, you know, get a number wrong on economics and will be treated entirely differently to how James is treated And that is to do with when you are somebody who represents supposed diversity or has a characteristic that isn't um, indicative of you being part of the mainstream, is the thing that makes you different, you are held out as being representative of everybody who holds that characteristic and that will be held over you when you make a mistake. And therefore that is used as a rationale to continue to push out people who look like you. So... I guess the only thing that I can say is that um, I think it's really important that we continue to support leadership in all of its forms, uh, that we recognise that uh, our parliament is not the best that it can be right now in terms of representation uh, and in terms of kind of mixture of skill sets. And... Uh, and also that we need to engage in recognising the roles that people can play outside of parliamentary politics to facilitate political change.
1: One of the best books I've ever read about political change is this book, um, Master of the Senate, and it's about the civil rights movement in the US. It's set during the 1960s, and the kind of key characters are Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson, And so King is the head of a movement and Johnson is the master of the Senate. He's sort of like the ultimate deal making politician. And the book really makes the very persuasive argument that change doesn't happen without both of them. Yep. Like the, the, the movement creates the pressure and then the politician, the deal maker, actually kind of like uses it and...
2: That's the distinction between you know. culture and structure that I was yeah. kind of talking about before, right? Like there's, mm. the, there's the creation of yeah. uh, the rules that all of mm. us have to abide by, yeah. but then there is the cultural change that can be conducive mm-hmm. to that structural change. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Maybe that's where we'll finish it. I think. Okay. okay. Are, we, are we free to go? I are mean, we, I don't know. Are you guys free to go? Maybe do we, do we have one more question? Yeah, okay, we Let's can have, have one more yeah, question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was, we've got a question at the back, Key thing.
0: Huh. Where's all the Rona talk? I, was, I came here sort of expecting world war, COVID, <laughs> uh, COVID change, everything, <laughs> but it seems like, I don't know, that, that you're sort of talking about theories and strategies and mm. concepts of the world that were
1: kind of the same as what they were before mm. before in the before four
0: times mm. um, like is, is that the case has has have those things not changed for you
1: well I I mean I, I did try to ask about that but I also kind of think that like <laughs> corona so my fault yeah, I'm sorry yeah, coronavirus <laughs> is like kind of a public health crisis and not a political crisis, so it means that the rules of politics don't seem to have changed? No, I mean mean, again,
2: the structure hasn't changed but what has changed is culture and I think Mm. that people have seen that things are possible. So, you know, one of the things that drives me up the wall is that people, all of these things that all of us were told were impossible for so long, housing the homeless, uh, creating flexible working arrangements for sole parents or for people with disabilities, um, raising the core benefit, all of these things have been happening almost overnight and therefore being exposed as literally just a matter of political willpower. So that kind of potential for change... Uh, is there if we want to grab it. And it has demonstrated how quickly things can change when presented with an entirely different context or new variables. And it's the same kind of thing that I was talking about with regard to the kind of the catalytic point of it took a synthetics crisis for us to have a meaningful discussion about the kind of changes that we would want in legislation and then other important Mm -hmm. variables Mm -hmm. um, with regard to... um, you know, the the opposition doing their bits and pieces. So things kind of have to line up. What COVID-19 does is changes the context and enabling people to rewrite the rules if they want to. But the thing that I have learnt about working with politicians across the aisle is that the mainstream approach to things inside of parliament uh, is deep risk aversion, Uh, Politicians will not change or will not act to change things unless they feel as though there is big public pressure behind that or as though it will win them votes or whatever. So if you want change, you have to put politicians' jobs at risk. That's how you change things.
1: Okay. I think we'll finish it there. With, with Chloe's job at risk, that's a good way to so end. So is at risk. Yeah. I mean,
2: have that's you seen right. the polls? Please vote that's green. True. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And and buy beer from meow. Those are good kind of kind of two action points from the evening. Um, <laughs> so thanks, thanks very much, Chloe. Thanks for coming in. I hope I left you all with a yeah. positive message yeah. to take home. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Hello for lover, I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spinoff. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a spin-off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz donate. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our like top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. In Alice Sneddon's "Bad News Saves the World," I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can okay. see the anxiety <laughs> starting to emit from you. The Spinoff Podcast Network.